welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas. Uh, thanks for checking out the pod today. Uh, continuing our episode in how to read the Bible. If you just listened to my previous episode on uh, repetition in the Old Testament, I hope, I hope, I don't know if I succeeded or not, but I, I hope that was insightful and not too technical and nerdy. I am... I'm a nerd, okay? I I love, I'm a Bible nerd. Um, seeing design patterns and repetition and uh, hyperlinks and similarities and differences like really actually kind of gets, gets me excited. If you couldn't tell, um, most of that episode I had uh, a few, just the two stories that I wanted to kind of talk about. And then the rest of it was just on the fly as as I'm talking about it, uh, references and hyperlinks and similarities and things like that are just, we're just coming and that's how it works. Um, and you end up in all kinds of fun places that way. And, um, it was my best attempt at least so far in my life to make a genealogy exciting. Uh, I did purposefully pick a genealogy, um, because if you can find meaning, significant meaning, I mean, I think, what I outlined in the last episode of Genesis 10 and 11 in the two genealogies of Shem, based on where they're placed and the differences in there, uh, that they are outlining in a way the entire story of the Old Testament and really the entire story of the Bible in these two genealogies. Um, If you can start to see purpose and uh, meaning and powerful meaning uh, like real, actual meaning in something that we usually skip over, like the genealogy, genealogies. I, I think you can, I think you can find it just about anywhere. And uh, again, my my point there was to show, and we'll talk a little bit more about this today, um, that there's nothing on accident uh, in the biblical narrative. That the authors put what is there. Um, on purpose, and they put it in the place that it is, in the way that it is, next to what it is on purpose. There's nothing, nothing in here by accident, and um, so that was my attempt. If I failed miserably, well, you know, we maybe next time I shouldn't be so bold to try and make a genealogy interesting over a podcast. But anyway, uh, here we are. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit today about. Um, the idea of inspiration and what we mean by inspiration. Um, if you grew up in a, a quote-unquote Bible-believing church, um, so if you grew up in like an evangelical church, really most Protestant churches, we will all, will all use this phrase that we are a Bible-believing church. I affirm that. Um, the question, though, I don't think anyone from the outside, surely no one in, I don't think, in the Christian tradition is wondering, do you believe the Bible? I mean, if you fundamentally don't believe the Bible, you are not a Christian, right? So to say we're a Bible-believing church or a a group of Bible-believing Christians, that's kind of repetitive because nobody but Christians believes the Bible. That's one of the things that make us Christians, is that we believe in the the the, the God and the and uh, His story uh, as revealed in the Bible? Uh, we only believe in 
the Bible because of Jesus, but Jesus says that the Bible points of him and he referenced. So to say I'm a, we're a Bible believing church is a little bit kind of a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, repetitive. The question is not, are you a Bible believing person or a Bible believing church? The question is, how are you reading it? That's how I open this series. It's not enough to say that we read the Bible or that we believe the Bible. What really matters is how we go about doing that, how we go about reading it and understanding it, and what and what is our methodology, what is our approach, how are we giving ourselves to that task. That's really what matters because you can read the Bible or believe the Bible all day, but if you believe it fundamentally in, in a fundamental wrong way, um, does it really matter? Um you know, people have done abhorrent things in the name of the Bible, and some of them were just twisting it for their own gain, but some of, some of them actually believed it. Some people have done, committed atrocities actually believing that that is what the Bible teaches and says and justifies. They really actually, they read it a particular way, and it led them to, uh, to do a particular thing. And so it's not just enough to say that we're a Bible-believing people or a Bible-believing church, but how are we going to do that? And that's been, uh, that's how I kind of kicked off this series. And really all of this, uh, our care for the Bible, the reason that we want to spend and do spend so much time trying to understand this ancient book. I mean, think about how many other, how many of your friends um, sit around and talk about an ancient book, an ancient set of texts, and read it and study it, and some even go to school to read it in their original language and culture. I mean, it's it's a weird thing if you think about it. And um, why? Why do we do that? A lot of it stems from this idea of inspiration, that the Bible is inspired by God, that we believe that the Bible is uh, breathed by God when when Paul uses Second um, Timothy three sixteen, it's the kind of the the foundational verse for the ins- inspiration of Scripture that all of Scripture and it, he's there referring to the Old Testament is God breathed. It's breathed by the Spirit. It's given to us by God for certain things for wisdom and reproach and teaching and correction and so on and so forth, depending on what translation you're using, it'll, it'll use, uh, you know, different terms that all obviously are pointing to the same idea. But what, what do we mean by inspiration? And what I actually want to talk more about today is how inspiration works. Like when, when I say the Bible is inspired, how do I imagine that working? And what do I, what do I mean by that? I think there are, there's for sure more than this, but I think there are two primary um, ways in which most people that, at least that I know, in the camps that I grew up in, still run in today, when I'm listening to speakers, um, when I'm reading things in kind of from my world, there are two main ideas that... Um, when we talk about inspiration or how the Bible is inspired, what, 
how do we imagine that actually working? There are two kind of views. And I think both of them are very, very faulty. And if we think about them this way, we actually miss um, on how the Bible not only is inspired, but how it actually works. And hopefully I'll show you what, what, what I mean by that here as we go. So the first view, so when we say the Bible is inspired, how does that actually work? The first view um, is what I would call the golden tablet view, uh, or you would say the, the Ten Commandments view. Um, the Ten Commandments, right, we get this story in Exodus, starting in Exodus 19, the people of God, Israel, they come to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up uh, into the mountain, and he's there for 40 days, doesn't eat or drink, um, and God meets with him on the top of the mountain, and he writes, it says, uh, it says he writes uh, these Ten Commandments, uh, these terms of their covenant, he writes them with his finger. God writes them with his finger, which is just bananas to even think about. And Moses walks down with these tablets of stone, these two tablets of stone, with 10 uh, terms of the covenant that are written by the hand of God himself. That, I think, is how most people, it's one of the two ways that I think most people think that the whole Bible works is that they were, the Bible was this collection um, of, especially the Old Testament. Oh, let me clarify. I think some people think this is how the whole thing works, but this is more true, I think, of the Old Testament from what I can tell in people's views. This is how I used to really kind of picture the Old Testament, that the whole Old Testament kind of worked this way, that as Jeremiah, I think I just hit my mic stand, but as Jeremiah was prophesying or, Ezekiel, or as David was writing, the words just kind of came down like they were written from the very finger of God. They just plopped down on them. And um, there was, you know, God's hand kind of reaching into the biblical author and almost kind of taking over and writing exactly what it is that he wanted to write. That's one way of thinking about it. It's kind of this golden tablet or, or what I would call the Ten Commandments rules. is that all of the scriptures were written by the finger of God in a kind of a similar way, although there it was it was visible. it was it was tangible, it's kind of like less visible, slightly less tangible version of that. But somehow through these biblical authors, God's finger was writing. And, and there's some truth in that for sure. That's what we mean in some way by divine inspiration. Um, that's kind of idea one. Idea two is what some people will call like the, the dictation view, meaning that the human authors were kind of just puppets. And God, they almost kind of went into this trance-like state. So if you think of Peter... In, um, what is it, Acts 10, I think off the top of my head, he goes up to pray uh, on the top of his roof and, and in the hour of prayer, and he goes into this trance and he sees this vision and he, uh, you know, of food coming down and this sheet and it's unclean and God is speaking to him. And he's, he's kind of dictating what it is that, that God is showing him. And this is another way to think about that some people, what they mean by inspiration is that, um, that the Bible 
the biblical authors kind of maybe went into this uh, trance-like state, or maybe they were not really even fully aware of it. Um, most of the time when I when people kind of start to articulate something like this, they they seem to think that the biblical authors are somewhat aware of it. Uh, but God is kind of dictating through them uh, that he is, but it's more than just, it's a very active thing that they have almost no control, uh, that they are kind of the pen and God's hand is just using them to write it. I mean, it's similar to the Ten Commandments view, but the Ten Commandments view views the scriptures kind of almost like falling out of the sky, uh, out of the heavens. And the dictation view is that these authors, uh, they went into come some kind of of alternative state of mind or state of being, and they began to just write, and God was was kind of writing through them, or that they were hearing these exact words of these poems and these prophecies, almost like uh, the spirit was whispering in their ear, and you know the little angel that sits on the shoulder, and that they were just copying what it is that they were hearing in their ear. Those are the two ways that I think most people think about inspiration. Um, Again, particularly in the Old Testament, because once you get to the New Testament, you get Paul's letters, um, you know, obviously form a large portion of it. And then you get some other epistles of, you know, obviously Peter and James and John. And they're just very, very clearly letters. So we don't, we don't, they're, and they're, you know, Paul writes in, in prose, and so it's pretty straightforward. It's not as much uh, prophecy. It's not as much poetry. Uh, it's there's not as much imagery. There's obviously still plenty there, um, but we we have more of a category for that style of writing. So I think it's a little bit easier for most people to to grasp that Paul was writing these letters, um, and uh, and the Spirit was just somehow kind of working working through him. The problem with both of these views is how the Bible actually talks about itself being put together. Um, If I were to ask you, when was the first time in Scripture that we get some reference to the Scripture itself being written? What would you guess? What would you say? Uh, Most people, I think, would go back to the story I just told in Mount Sinai. But that's not true. That's actually the second time um, that the Bible references itself being written. The first is actually before that. It's still in Exodus. It's in, it's in Exodus 17. It's that story um, where Israel is uh, doing battle against the Amalekites. And uh, Moses is standing there, and as long as he's holding up his hands, uh, that they, the children of Israel win, are winning, and the moment that he lowers them, they begin to lose. And so he has to have people, Joshua, and I can't remember uh, who else, who, who comes in and helps him. Uh, they hold up, uh, I think it's maybe it's Aaron and Joshua, they begin to hold up um, Moses' hands and so that they so that they win. And the Lord brings about a great battle. And after that, uh, in I think verse 14, uh, the Lord tells Moses to write this down in a book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua uh, so that 
everyone will remember this, this is my paraphrase. He basically says, hey, Moses, write this down so that Joshua can tell it. You can tell it to Joshua, and Joshua can tell it so that nobody forgets this. Now, if that seems kind of underwhelming to you, that's kind of the point. The first time we get the Bible referencing itself being written, it's just one or two verses of God saying, hey, write this down and tell it. That's kind of it. And so what does Moses do? He writes it down. But that's it at that point. From what we can tell, from from what we have in the biblical narrative, the first time anyone is told to write something down, to be retold later, it's that story in Exodus 17. And then it happens again at Mount Sinai. Write this down. Write down all of the the laws of the covenant uh, so that I can can tell them. And, And that then becomes obviously a large portion of of the Torah, of the first five books. But what you can see, even in just those two stories, is Moses writing things down afterward and writing them down at different times and at different commands. That Moses is not writing down this whole thing in one sitting, He's not writing down this entire story in one moment. And when you're talking about, you know, the opening stories of Genesis, these are oral traditions that have been passed down. That's why you get two stories of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that are different, that have different orders, that God creates things in a different sequence in different ways if you pay attention to those two stories they're just they're fundamentally different they're structured different they say different things and so you get this story of moses writing these things down over time now in kings and in in chronicles you get all these stories of the kings and you get this little refrain a lot of times after they die the author will say, and if you want to go read the rest of what they did, it's written down in this book or in that book, the book of the kings or whatever. And there's a whole bunch. I, I, I should have made a list, but there's a whole bunch of different books written that the Bible itself references that by the Bible referencing it tells us that they were already written. These other books were already written. And the Bible, the biblical author is pulling stories from these other things and writing this work, whatever work it is, Second Kings, a story in Second Kings. And they are pulling certain details and purposefully leaving other things out. Right? So when they're telling the story, they are making decisions as to because we know that these other scrolls these other texts exist because they're referencing them and they're referencing them in a tense that says that these ones already existed and they are purposefully selecting what stories to pull out and which ones to not an easy an easy way to see this is in the story of David in Samuel you get his sin with Bathsheba 
in the story of David in Chronicles, there is no story of Bathsheba. If you were to, if you only had Chronicles, you would never even know about it, because Chronicle, the writers of Chronicles, are trying to do completely different things, and so they're selecting different stories from David, David's life, putting them in different order for a particular purpose. Uh, another example of this would be Jeremiah. Uh, God tells Jeremiah, write down all of the words of your prophecy. And so he writes all of them down uh, with a, uh, a friend of his, a companion of his named Baruch. And uh, they go and now they proclaim these prophecies. So they write them all down and they proclaim them. And everybody gets so mad, I think it's the, the king, I can't remember which one now off the top of my head, gets so mad, takes the scroll and burns it, destroys it. So all this work that they just did is just gone. So the Lord says, write it down again. Uh, and also words that were similar to it. And that's it. That's the story. And so Jeremiah sits down with Baruch again. And they write, they rewrite it, and they add things the second time that were not in there the first time. Again, what's the point? The point is that there's purposeful composition. There's purposeful addition. There's purposeful um, thought behind it. And all of the prophets work this way. Uh, You can go to the Psalms, and it says, these are the Psalms of David. And then you get to a certain point, and it says, the Psalms, I think after 72, the Psalms of David have ended. Except when there are more Psalms of David, attributed to David anyway, uh, in the ascription, later on. I thought the Psalms of David had added. Well, they were at one point, is when there was only 72 Psalms in the collection. And later on, more were added, and they just added them on later. Same thing in Proverbs. These are the, the, the sayings of Solomon. Until you get to Proverbs that, were, that are ascribed to other people, right? It, and at the very end, you get, you know, the, the Psalm uh, 31, or Proverbs 31, which is a saying of this man named Lemuel, this uh, prince or king named Lemuel, but it's not even really his. It says it's from his mom. So there's there's additions and reworkings and revisions and redactions going on all throughout the scripture. Who added the story of when Moses died? And they say, if you read that story, it says Moses is dead and there's never been a prophet like him since. And no one knows where his body is till this day. That sounds like it's being written a long time later. Hey, because they're even making they're even making a theological claim about the person of Moses that Moses was a prophet. Whoever wrote that had a theological view that Moses was a prophet and there's never been one since Moses. There's never been a prophet since Moses like him. And we're kind of waiting for one. Right? This is why in the gospels when Jesus shows up they say are you the prophet? Is it in John in particular John uh, five and six, I think. Are you the prophet? Referencing back to, to Deuteronomy 18, that there's going to be a prophet coming. So Moses 
prophesies there's going to be another great prophet. After he dies, someone tacks on to his writing, Moses died, we've never had a prophet like him since, and no one knows where his body is, as a way to say we're still waiting. When Now, we don't know when that was added or who added it, but someone did, and they did it for a reason at their time uh, to point us in a particular direction, to get us to read in a particular way. My point in all of this is to say this. We need to view, I think, the right way to view inspiration is not tablets of stone coming out of heaven and not, you know, the little angel sitting on Jeremiah's shoulder whispering, this is exactly what I want you to say. It's human authors using their skill, using their craft, using their own mind, and mysteriously and but in a very real way the spirit working through all of these different authors and the reality is is we even we don't even really know how many biblical authors there are and most of them we don't know their name because every book of the bible has some sort of uh, addition or redaction or um uh, splicing that's going on or rearranging that's going on. And you can see it in, in basically all of the texts um, if, you, if you, you know, look closely and start reading and paying attention and what's being referenced where and, and so on and so forth. And so most of these, are, most of these people are, are anonymous. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's an only human effort to say that the Bible is is a work of human hands is not to say that it's not the work of God's hand. It's to say that it's the work of both fully at the same time. And I think the easiest way to think about this is this is the same or very similar claim to what we make of Jesus. Jesus is fully human and fully God at the same time. He is not God wrapped in a human shell. He is not God pretending to be a human, he's, those are all heresies. And the Bible, like formal heresies in the church. And the Bible, I think, is a similar thing. It is fully human and fully God, fully divine, divinely inspired. That would be a better way to put it. It's fully human written, fully divinely inspired, all at the same time. And those two things are not in competition with each other. And this is... I think underneath the surface, this is a bigger question and problem I think we need to wrestle with, is we too often view as humans and divine in competition. That if something is the work of man, it can't be the work of God. And I would say, no, 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 not at all. When humans are being fully human, they are the made vessel for the work of God. Go read Genesis 1 1 and 2. This is what humans were made to be, the image bearers of God, uh, propagating God's work and God's ways and God's kingdom and his rule on the earth. So we should expect the Bible to be fully human and fully divinely inspired at the same time. Now, why does all this matter? We'll end here. All of this matters because of what we were talking about in last episode. There is a structure and an order and a design and a purpose behind every detail 
in the scriptures. And if we don't see them as crafted works of human hands with human ingenuity, divinely inspired all the way, through and through, every word is a word from God, but crafted and thought through and put together by the works of human hands for a specific reason. If we don't see it that way, we don't even have the right set of glasses to try and see the literary structure, to try and see things like repetition, to try and and pay attention to the ways in which the texts are are operating. Why is there two genealogies of Shem? Why is Abraham right after Babel? Why are there two accounts of creation in Genesis? Um, so on and so forth. And we could we could go all the way through. And and the reason is that they're all crafted with purpose and with intent. Every single detail. Every single detail. Someone did this all the way through. And again, we see this in, in the New Testament. John has seven signs. There are seven feasts. Uh, if you, in the opening of John's gospel, he begins to count days and Jesus shows up and then he says the next day and the next day and two days later. And then he has seven days. John counts out seven days that culminate in Jesus turning water to wine. He says this was the beginning of God's manifesting his glory uh, in Jesus, in the first sign that he did. So, is that all on accident? No, it's all on purpose, by written in there by John, very intentionally, that took a long time. You don't write something like that in an hour, or in the three hours that it maybe takes you to read it. It takes a long time of reflection and thought and purpose and craft, and we need to see it as such so that we can read it as such and that we can, um, we can value it for what it is and so that we can understand it on its own terms. That the Bible is making uh, specific claims. This is why I think some people want... Our, uh, let me put it this way. This is why some people ask questions of the Bible that the Bible is not asking itself and it's not trying to answer the six days of creation, young earth. The Bible is not asking that question at all. Moses is not writing uh, to answer that question at all. It's not concerned with the age of the earth in the least bit, like not in the least bit. And if we think that it is, we're, we're fundamentally misunderstanding what it is that, the, that Moses or the biblical authors are trying to do and the way in which it's trying to do it. And one of my point here is, one of the ways that we find out what is the Bible trying to do is by paying attention to the way in which it's acting. When we see and pay attention to the way that the Bible is working, we get a better understanding as to what the Bible is trying to do. But if we think about it, if we think about the Bible as golden tablets falling out of heaven or being just dictated by an angel on the prophet's shoulder. We just don't even, we don't even come to the table with the right set of glasses to be able to read. And so, uh, spend some time, spend some time, I think, thinking through that and maybe even examining your own mind of how, how have I thought about the Bible being composed and written and how have I come to, to understand that? So inspiration, um, 
it's a big deal. It's in a sense, it's one of the the pillars of of our faith that we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. But again, it's not just that we believe it; it's in what way, and what do we mean by that? That really that really matters. And this, by the way, this is a lot of the atheist attacks on the Bible, whatever. This is their fundamental misunderstanding. They operate and think that the Bible are, are the Bible is tablets of stone fallen down out of the sky, and therefore, if we can just discredit this or that, that the whole thing falls apart. And if you if you understand it on its own terms, a lot of those arguments um, they just become irrelevant, and they don't don't even really really matter. Okay, uh, that's enough on that, and I think uh, that will be enough on how to read the Bible. There's so much more we could we could talk about, um, but uh, in my next series, uh, I'm I'm kind of going from a, a movie reference, um, The Princess Bride. That The Princess Bride is going to be our launching point for our next series. And you'll have to just wait to find out exactly what that is. And our guest, my guest for um, that series to, to do a deep dive episode um, is a man named Brad Jerzak. And uh, I have been heavily influenced by Brad. And so it's going to be an honor to talk to him. Make sure you subscribe um, to the podcast. So when that episode hits, uh, that's going to be the first, my, uh, my interview with Brad is going to be the first episode in this series, the next series. And uh, so when that hits, Uh, you'll want to listen to that right away. So thank you so much again for checking out the pod and uh, we'll talk to you next time.